Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another abysmal week on Wall Street, marking the most down week since the 2008 financial crisis. Investors punished Boeing stock as concerns mount regarding the giant's financial health and whether the 777X jetliner program faces possible termination. Meanwhile, the security order in Europe is being rewritten as Britain strikes strategic alliances with Finland and Sweden as Helsinki announced historic plans to join the NATO alliance and Stockholm is expected to follow suit. And to date, COVID has killed at least 1 million Americans and more than 6.3 million worldwide. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C., and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. And because of scheduling challenges uh, this weekend, Sash will be joining us first and Richard and Ron uh, will be on uh, shortly. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Vargo. It's, it's a pleasure, but it's a great shame we're, that, that we can't all four of us be together. Uh, well, indeed. I mean, as as COVID uh, recedes, uh, everybody is getting out and about, and we appreciate that. And you guys have been terrific in being able to join us uh, so consistently for so long. So I think we have to expect that uh, we might be getting a little bit uh, back to regular uh, order. We're going to hear from uh, Ron uh, and Richard uh, shortly, as I as I mentioned, but wanted to get your sense on what drove European markets. Uh, it was a tough week, uh, worst week in, since 2008 in terms of uh, the most prolonged down market uh, we've seen, a, a lot of concerns. Uh, talk to us about where we are on volatility, inflation, you name it, and whatever was driving European investors last week. You're, I'm, you're absolutely right. It was, a, it was a very, very volatile week. I think what was interesting from a European perspective is that uh, there, were, there were not clear winners or, you know, one side of the defense or civil aerospace uh, divide. Normally, you know, it, I mean, risk on and civil aerospace stocks outperform risk off and defense companies tend to do better. But actually last week, certainly towards the end of the week, they were they were moving in lockstep. So effectively, they were being driven by much broader macro issues. Concerns about inflation. Yeah, absolutely. Concerns about the impact of uh, rising fuel prices. Uh, and just the degree to which that may send some European nations into uh, into recession, and then there was also, you know, the contagion effect uh, of the the real problems with uh, various of the cryptocurrencies, and the degree to which that made the market feel very very risk off, and in particular, it it had an effect on on growth stocks and companies with a uh, you know with with a bias towards that. There was one thing that I would highlight though. Uh, during the week that was very, very defense specific. We've talked on this show quite a lot about how the, you know, the first quarter of 2022 has not been a terribly interesting quarter for most of the stocks reporting, certainly on this side of the pond. And there's been a sort of persistent level of questioning from investors to managers of defense companies about when are you guys, guys actually going to see any business, new business come through? Uh, from Ukraine. Now, our view is that's far, it's been far too early to talk about that, but that's been a very consistent line of questioning. Um, and Kongsberg, the Norwegian uh, defense, uh, or it, it's a multi-industry business, but with a, a strong defense business, and it's effectively the Norwegian national champion. Uh, Kongsberg um, uh, is about the last to report of any of the, any of the stocks we look at. They, um, they had a set of results that were disappointing let's be honest they took some big write downs uh, uh associated with uh, some of their shipping or ship related civil uh businesses um and they were clearly uh, very very cautious indeed about the um uh the out the, the near term outlook for their uh defense activities and the shares frankly tanked I and mean, the shares were off you know um 11% 
on, on, on the numbers, which I think just shows the degree to which investors have got a little bit carried away. They don't, probably don't necessarily either understand or have the patience with the decision-making cycle of most governments and defence ministries. Governments and defence ministries work in months is good, quarters is still pretty good, years is more likely. Investors right. are working in hours, days, weeks. And that mismatch really came back to hit Kongsberg this week. And I think then had an effect on a lot of the other uh, European defence stocks. Um, I think it's uh, fascinating, right? I mean, people have their mental models. Uh, and at the end of the day, when they uh, aren't really in sync with reality, it ends up being uh, very, very negative, right? I mean, there's a sense of a surge. Uh, and it was interesting, the defensive uh, point you made, right? I mean, in the United States, uh, the, the defense names have a, a tendency of being defensive plays uh, in, in market strategies. Um, Finland uh, made historic news uh, this week. Uh, a nation that prizes autonomy not only announced plans to join NATO, but also struck a strategic mutual um, uh, defense alliance with the United Kingdom. Uh, London inked a similar agreement with uh, Sweden uh, that also is expected to join uh, the alliance. We can get to whether or not Hungary and Turkey are going to be permitting it, but at least that's what uh, the plan seems to be now. What are the defense industrial implications, Sash, of these alliances and agreements? Um, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, alliance. I think it's it, they're really agreements at this stage. Uh, but but you know, NATO is definitely an alliance. Um, and even the fact that Finland wants to join NATO, I mean, that uh, uh, that really is a, as you say, that's historic, and that absolutely confirms that um, uh, you know the, the 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 two big neutrals of the north are are coming into the the, the wider alliance. Um, there was a very interesting comment from NATO Secretary General uh, Jens Stoltenberg this week, who he said, uh, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, it, it makes huge sense for Finland and Sweden to uh, join NATO. Um, they are, uh, you know, they've got very, very uh, capable militaries and they've got very, very capable uh, defence industries. And they're all, you know, we train together and they're completely compatible with, you know, everything that we do in NATO. And I read that and I thought, whoa, that's really quite impressive for Saab. Saab's problem exporting the, the grip and fighter has always been the, uh, you know, it's compared to saying, look, nice little fighter, but you know, it's a Swedish aircraft, it's not NATO compatible. Uh, you know, if you're a NATO compatible aircraft, you're going to buy F-16s, uh, Eurofighters, um, Rafales or whatever, um, it, you know, which has always been a bit of a slur, but hell, it's worked. Um, I think the fact that there's a NATO Secretary General basically saying, you know, Sweden and Finland are as aligned with NATO as, as almost any other nations already in the alliance are. Their equipment is as aligned with NATO as any other nations in the, in the alliance are. That's a fantastic seal of approval for uh, stuff that the Finns and, and the Swedes might want to uh, export. And I think that was a, um, that's something that's probably overlooked by uh, you know, some watchers this week. Um, there will be, over time, a little bit of turnover of the material, particularly in Finland, that is Russian sourced and which clearly cannot any longer be maintained. Most of the stuff that the Finns had, which was Russian sourced, has gone into storage. But, you, you know, you'll remember we talked about this a couple of months ago. Um, they actually took a whole load of the book uh, anti-aircraft missiles, uh, missile systems as counter trade about 20 years ago. Uh, from Russia, um, put them all into storage. I think now that you know that those are going to be unsupportable by the Finns, I think they will trade those out, hopefully to, to uh, Ukraine, and then there will be a requirement for Finland to increase its holdings of Western surface air missile systems, whether NASAMs or. You know, indeed, whether they join the Patriot Club. Uh, speaking of alliances, uh, the UK struck uh, an alliance, a partnership, a deeper security partnership with Japan. Uh, obviously, the UK wanting uh, to play a much more prominent role uh, in Asia at a very important time. And indeed, we saw the Queen Elizabeth deployment, where um, was just an extraordinary deployment and worked very closely with Japanese uh, naval forces. And, and there is a tripartite naval agreement uh, between the United States, Japan uh, and the United Kingdom that was struck some years ago. What does this alliance, this partnership with Japan mean for the Tempest program? Because, uh, you know, there's always been a sense that the UK was interested also in bringing Saudi Arabia into that partnership, although it was a little bit politically thorny in the wake of the Khashoggi affair um, and, and the Yemen war and, and other sorts of challenges there. 
But ultimately, um, you know, Saudi Arabia was a great Eurofighter customer, was an Al Yamama, uh, was obviously one of the largest weapons arrangements uh, for the UK uh, in, in history. What does the Japan agreement mean? And do Japan and Saudi Arabia actually end up becoming Tempest partners? We've discussed Saudi Arabia being a potential Tempest partner uh, as well. And what does that in turn mean for the other partners, Saab, uh, as well as Leonardo, you know, Rolls and everybody else who's part of the Tempest team? We, we still don't fully understand, uh, and I, it hasn't really been, been you know, nailed down exactly the, uh, the nature of the Tempest program. And, and the same goes for you know, SCAF and FGAS to, uh, to, to some degree. But certainly when I've talked to UK industrialists and politicians, there has been a, a, you know, one of the concepts has been that Tempest would be a much more flexible, much more open program than uh, Eurofighter or indeed Tornado. Eurofighter and Tornado, you had program partners, three in the case of uh, Tornado, four in the case of Eurofighter. Um, they were countries, they put money in, they got work share out on a just retour basis. Uh, so everybody got a little bit, everybody developed their own domestic industries, everybody got a production line, blah, blah, blah. Um, Tempest is probably going to be significantly different to that. Uh, and in particular, because I think there is a realization that different partners are bringing very, very different skills. Saab, for example, is bringing a, you know, a world-class digital design capability. Uh, we've seen that with Grip and E. We've seen that with the T7A uh, Red Hawk. Um, and also, uh, you know, very, very good electronic warfare capabilities. Uh, Italy, on the other hand, uh, or sorry, Leonardo, and Leonardo, of course, is Anglo-Italian. The British side is bringing, uh, you know, just world-leading uh, radar skills. Um, Leonardo in Italy will probably join on to that, but also, you know, very good aerostructure skills. But other members of, or other partners within Tempest may come in, and this is my personal view now, but it's based on, you know, a lot of conversations I've had. Some of the, them will be almost financial investors. Um, help fund the program up front, and you will get your air, air systems um, you know, in a preferential way, designed in the way that, or, you know, tailored to the way that you want, and possibly even, you know, preferential uh, deliveries and pricing. Um, that would be an ideal position for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has no significant military aircraft industry, even after um, nearly 40 years of BA systems and Boeing um, on, you know, on each of the, the two sides of the Saudi defense capability, um, going through a process of Saudiization. But Saudi clearly wants to have, uh, you know, a, a you know a seat at least close to top table, rather than you know being invited in just to be a customer. Japan, I think, will also be different. I don't think Japan will buy Tempest aircraft, and I think the idea that Japan will come in and sort of lever um, uh, Southern Leonardo out of work on the European Tempest program, I think that's wholly, um, uh, you know, over. Uh, over concern at the moment. I think Japan is more likely to share development of a number of the work streams. Um, we've already seen a collaborative program between MBDA, specifically in the UK and Japan to uh, make a Japanese version of the uh, Meteor missile, air-to-air missile. I think the Japanese have clearly got a military, uh, you know, about sixth generation military aircraft platform that they would like to develop but there are elements of tempest that they would like to uh like to get access with and share um probably some of the the funding and development and so forth but i i i would see saudi and japan as being associates of the program rather than work sharing uh work sharing partners in the traditional sense uh i don't think this changes the uh the program nature particularly but i think you know anything that brings more money into the program early on and uh, provide some sort of market, whether for technology or ultimately whether, you know, for, for the aircraft early on has is got to be a very, very attractive uh, business plan. And I'd compare it with SCAF, FCAS, the Franco-German Spanish program, where DASO in particular, but France in general, has basically said, you know, no one else is coming in. Uh, you know, the, 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 the program partnership is frozen we will we'll sell aircraft, but we're not going to have other partners. That partly reflects the fact that I think Dasso was blindsided when Spain was invited in politically, 
um, and found reallocating work share between itself and Germany and so forth, you know, very, very hard to do at a stage when the programme least needed it. I think that's a very inflexible approach by France, personally, but, you know, that's, that's their decision. It'll be a tri-nation programme, uh, but then, you know, who would underestimate Dassault's ability to export it thereafter? Um, we've we've got about a minute uh, left, and I uh, want to get your uh, sense on uh, Boeing, uh, where we are with uh, the company, and what potentially. Right, I mean, nothing official at this point about Triple Seven X, but certainly uh, some news stories and some speculation that are out there. Uh, from from your perspective on the financials, where are we, and what's new? We don't believe that they will get out of Triple Seven X. First of all, um, we believe that I mean the program is clearly in trouble. Um, and is not being managed tightly, but this is going to be the aircraft at the top at the top of the civil aircraft market. You know, it's going to replace a ton of um, what would otherwise have been, uh, you know, 747s, A380s, early model 777s. It's going to be a fantastic freighter. It was designed to be a freighter. Um, there will be, you know, no better on the market. Um, you know, even the A3. The A350 freighter, I you know, really won't com- compete uh, in that regard. So we think the 777 will survive, but um, it, it keeps going on getting delayed, and that's that's bad. The comments coming out of the lessors at a um, meeting in Dublin this week were absolutely brutal. Um, some of the lessors are clearly losing, um, uh, you know, losing patience with Boeing. And comments that were coming out saying basically... Uh, you know, Boeing needs a complete management change, and it may well be that the um, uh, the company, uh, you know, the company can't launch any new program until it gets new management. That shows an astonishing lack of confidence in the current Boeing uh, leadership. And frankly, based on you know the performance to date, we share that. We were very surprised that uh, the CFO uh, on a um, uh, an investment bank uh, investor conference this week basically said. We don't need to think about an equity issue at this stage. You know, we're absolutely fine. Our view was that that was thinking in far too narrow terms about liquidity rather than understanding uh, about the strategic need for Boeing to have a ton of cash and then to be able to spend it on new programs. And um, that seemed to me to be, you know, that was a very, very poor answer to a to an extreme, you know, the most important question about, about Boeing's strategic requirements. If the company doesn't understand that, you know, they need to have a strong balance sheet. And um, if that means uh, raising equity, so be it. But basically, the investors who took all of Boeing's cash uh, over the last five, six, seven years or so are going to have to need to sub it again. Um, then there's a, you know, really fatal misunderstanding there. And this is crippling Boeing and keeping it in, you know, a weak number two position, which has never been in, um, you know, in the last half century. Uh, and in uh, less than 30 seconds, uh, where are we on the war and what are your expectations, right? I mean, it's beginning to look a little bit frozen. Uh, some progress, obviously, by Ukrainian forces around Kharkov, losing uh, Ukrainians, losing a little bit of ground in the in the east uh, from, you know, and, and Russia then also retaliating, right, in, with the only tools it knows how against uh, Finland, energy, right, cutting off electric supplies. Where, where, where are we? Where are we? going very briefly uh, in terms of what you've seen over the past week? I've got to be honest, I worry that uh, as external observers, we tend to overlook the fact that the Russians are still making progress, albeit very, very slow progress down in the southeast. Uh, You know, they are nibbling away in the uh, Donbass Basin region. Um, They are net gaining ground and putting Ukraine in a very difficult position uh, strategically. There's effectively a salient developing there. Salients are never good in warfare. Um, and that's the thing that worries me the most. Ukraine has done, has done a fantastic job further to the north and uh, trying to defeat some of the Russian um, uh, subsidiary axes, particularly the, the river crossings, has been remarkable. But I, you know, my, my biggest worry is down in the, the south and east moment. Um, energy is becoming important. Um, we're seeing pipelines uh, transporting gas starting to be uh, constrained. Uh, and as you say, you know, turning off, turning off electricity supplies to Finland. Um, it, you know, this is probably the last geopolitical uh, weapon that's, that Russia has got, um, and they're starting to deploy it, which I think is, you know, it's going to make make it tougher for Europe in the short term. Sash, uh, thanks very much. Really appreciate you joining us. Know how busy you are this weekend. Uh, thanks so much, and look forward to having everybody back on uh, together next week. Thanks again. Yeah, I look forward to it too, Vargo. Thanks very much.
And a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Air Space Conference and Trade Show, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual symposium. Ron and Richard, great to have you on the program. And I'm sorry we all uh, couldn't uh, be together. Ron, uh, start us off. You know, we heard at the top of the program how. Uh, European investors responded to their no good, really bad week. Uh, and uh, the situation was somewhat worse on Wall Street, again, driving uh, in part uh, global sentiment and reflecting it uh, most down week since 2008. Uh, we're going to get to Boeing uh, in a moment uh, because Boeing did have a really bad week as well uh, in the eyes of investors. But let's let's start off with what were the drivers uh, on the broader market and how the group uh, performed, right? I mean, we heard from Sash that defense was not as defensive in a European context where investors, I think, have been expecting more progress uh, as a result of the war and not seeing it. From your standpoint, what was driving the broader market and how did the group perform overall? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the factors we look at um, every week, let's just, you know, the S&P was down uh, on the week about two and a half percent. You look at the large caps we cover, Lockheed Martin was down about 3%, Northrop down about 3%, L3 Harris down about 3%, Raytheon down about 3.5%, and then Lockheed was down almost 15 excuse me, and then Boeing was down almost 15%. Um, if you look at the volatility index, the VIX for the week, the VIX uh, ended the week at 28, uh, but really kind of you know, bounced around during the week. Uh, and you know the ten-year yield uh, settled in uh, just just below three percent. But if you look at the yield curve, you know from you know between you know ten years all the way out to thirty years, it's pretty flat. Uh, so what the market is, I think, trying to digest is uh, inflation. Uh, we had an inflation print that came in uh, for last month, and I think it came in at like eight point five percent, a smidge down off of uh, the previous month. But the the core piece where you take out. Uh, the more volatile uh, energy prices and some other stuff was higher than people were expecting. Um, so it's you, you, the market is still trying to, to digest inflation, the Fed, other uncertainty, uh, things like are we already in a recession, that, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, and you know the defense group broadly was reasonably defensive in, 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 the, in the U.S. Um, so I think that's you know, kind of where we ended the week. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the Boeing uh, news flow. Obviously, uh, CFO Brian West triggered uh, some of those concerns in terms of uh, his uh, commentary on the on the company's financial situation. Uh, and then, you know, this sort of um, growing storyline uh, that uh, the 777X uh, could face possible termination. Uh, obviously, a program that's been very plagued and we've been following it for some months. And I know there's new news flow uh, on the 787, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But sort of give us, give us your sense on, you know, why investors were so hard on Boeing um, in terms of its debt picture, uh, programmatic outlook, sort of walk, walk us through where investors and what investors were telling you and what your own concerns were with what you heard over the course of the week and saw. Yeah, it, it was interesting. I mean, after they reported earnings, the stock really has been been quite weak. Uh, and, and this week, it, it was particularly weak. I think it's, it's a, several factors. If you look at their you know, uh, debt due profile, uh, Boeing has uh, in 2023, 5 billion of debt uh, maturing in 2024, another five billion of debt maturing out in uh, you go out to 2025, about four and a half billion, 4.3 billion maturing. You go out to 2026, they have almost eight billion maturing. So you have, you have a bunch of debt maturing. Their cash flow profile is behind where uh, most people were expecting for any number of reasons. I mean, you, we've talked about it before, uh, all the charges they've taken across pretty much every program, and so their profitability is behind where. Uh, everybody was expecting and their inventory is much bigger than uh, what, what folks were expecting. But when you have a company with a market cap of uh, $75 billion that has $50 billion of debt, it starts to worry investors around things like, will their credit be downgraded from investment grade to high yield? Uh, and to have $50 billion of high yield debt um, on the market, it's a, it's a gigantic number. And if you think about how fixed, can, fixed income investors work. So if you're a fixed income investor uh, and your, your portfolio is investment grade and what you're holding gets downgraded to junk, you can no longer hold it. And typically in a, a high yield um, debt portfolio, you'll hold less debt. So if you're holding, say, let's just give you an example, uh, $500 million of Boeing and in its investment grade, and then Boeing goes down to, to high yield, 
all of a sudden you might not be able to hold it at all anymore. Or uh, you're in your high yield portfolio, you might be only be able to hold 100 million. So you have to put 400 million on the market. So if Boeing were to be downgraded, you'd expect you know potentially um, their debt could uh, really really fall in place, fall in price because you have a lot of it hitting the market. So uh, you know the yield would go up. So there was a lot of concerns about you know, the balance sheet, the the outlook for um, their their balance sheet, and so on and so forth. And that seems to be coming coming to a head now. Um, and then and in an environment where interest rates tend to be trending up, you're and you're worrying about you know things like a possible recession and what that means for air traffic and so on and so forth. Um, it's just a volatile mix, and that's where we are. Uh, and it's all in a name, right? Uh, it's it's either a high yield bond or a junk bond, uh, right? I mean, it's yeah, all yeah, sort of yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, at that point, it's a, it's a semantic uh, debate. So very elegantly negotiated, Dr. Epstein. Um, uh, Richard, uh, talk to us a little bit about the importance of the 777X program, what the rumors mean, right? I mean, we heard from Sash about how important the program is, uh, especially as we expect 380s to be retired, 747s gone uh, or, or going um, and, and indeed, right. I mean, it's, it's sort of the right airplane for the right market, whether for passenger traffic or, or for freight, um, you know, talk, talk to us about, you know, the, the financial liquidity issues that the company may be facing, but also the importance of triple seven X and getting it right. And how much more margin, um, there is, you know, and, and look, right. I mean, the company could surprise people and say, Hey, you know, we, we look at this as a bleeder and we're getting, uh, uh rid of it. And then on top of that, we've heard, you know, we saw Reuters report, uh, that the FAA is not happy with Boeing's 787 fixes, right? So this is actually a little bit of a bigger story. And, and again, storylines we've been covering for a long time coming together. Talk to us about debt, 7, 777X and 787. Uh, and Ron, maybe get your commentary on the 787 and the 777X news. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many issues rolled into this. But of course, uh, you know, one of the pivotal moments of the week was when Steve Udverhazi, uh, Airways, of course, uh, said, gee, you know, I can't guarantee that there will be a 777X program, uh, you know, in a couple of years. It depends on the board, you know, because this isn't the board that's going to make the decision, which, of course, raises questions about the board. Uh, many of us, I think, have had questions about the board for some time, and it's um, seemingly big-hearted, generous, uh, complete lack of criticism or oversight of anything. It, it appears to be, I guess, I'm, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to come up with a better term than big-hearted. They're just awfully generous. Um, so does he they know give, they about, give, they give, That's they give it. till it hurts. And of course it, it hurts many people, but you know, what does he know about that or what are the rumors? And of course there have been rumors for some time about management, which doesn't seem to have its heart in building jetliners. Uh, I would also, again, this, you can go down so many different paths with this conversation, but uh, a week or so ago, Ron put out the comprehensive list of jetliner related problems and, and, you know, sort of the ceremonial airing of grievances from Festivus. And I was just like, holy cow, this is an incredible list. And, you know, 777X is just the latest. I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with Sash. It is not the right plane for the market right now. One day, I think it conceivably will be. One day, this process of route fragmentation will reverse itself and the market will need bigger jets again. But now I'd rather sell you a radioactive rock, as I'm fond of saying, than I would a large twin aisle of any sort. Um, freighters, sure, but that's one a month. Uh, everything else, not so much. The other development this week, of course, is Lufthansa saying, yeah, we're just going to convert some triple seven X's into seven, eight sevens. Part of that's the delay, but you know, part of it is also that people are seeing that you, you know, once again, the time honored validation of Robert Crandall's maxim that you never went bankrupt flying a plane that was too small. And route fragmentation is also just a wonderful and virtuous thing. And of course, that would be very good for Boeing if um, they were, you know, technically speaking, delivering 787s, which they're not. And it doesn't look like they'll be doing that anytime soon, judging by the news today that you just cited. So it was a whole litany of horror. Um, I, you know, Boeing, to their credit, I, I guess did reassure the market about the 777X and why people, why they're going to stick with it. But, uh, you know, with the 737 MAX 10, looking really critical and it's a plane that people want and need the 787 a plane that i think people are going to start needing soon and yet they're not building them i mean 
the overall image is of a company that does have some good jets to sell and a complete inability to develop and build them. It's all a very baffling picture, made even more baffling this week. And of course, the other event was um, Donald Slattery, their cap, I believe, uh, coming out and saying, yeah, they might want to consider regime change, <laughs> Boeing, right. which is pretty extraordinary because, you know, of course, Udvar Hazi implied it too, especially with his comments about the board. So I, I'm, I just continue to be baffled by everything that is happening at Boeing on the jetliner front um, at, in terms of top management and the board. I continue to be baffled too by their endless tolerance for military program pro, uh, program pro problems. But that to me is, you know, almost secondary to the, the disaster on the jetliner front, especially since you know, you've got this contrast with Boeing not taking the steps it needs uh, and indeed suffering some egregious body blows. And their idea of messaging is to move the headquarters to Washington further away from Seattle. And the messaging from Airbus is we're going to 75 per month join us. We're going to dominate the market. That's a 70-30 market split. So at this point, the contrast is becoming pretty overwhelming. Um, and the 787 problems and what they mean? Well, you know, I mean, or that at is least a the 787, body. right? I mean, it's Reuters uh, initial initial reports, but our understanding is, or, or their reporting suggests that the FAA is not happy with the corrective action that Boeing is taking. Um, and Boeing has been Right. I mean, a number of stories have been chronicling how hard the company is is working to at least try to get that program right uh, at this point. Right. I mean, what are the implications? I mean, I think there are many implications, but it's just extraordinary that this plane has been out of production for so long at this stage. I think Ron has mentioned it before the idea of a you know decade old program just suddenly stopping because of a combination of greater oversight and inadequate documentation and doubts about certain parts of the production program just that's just weird um, and that's another thing how he said this week you know i've never seen anything like this and if i were Boeing, i'd be parachuting in people across the board you know because clearly the one unifying theme to all of this is inadequate technical resources and of course the brilliant move to take the 787 line and move it to a place far about 2,500 miles from where it was designed and created, uh, ensuring that you you have to bring people in, um, you have to recreate that design capability. And, you know, there are so many questions about technical resources being provided for, I believe the only jetliner line that I can think of that's actually been moved in the history of the business. I'm sure someone's going to come up with an exception to that, but I, I don't remember this having happened before. Um, so I, I think this is one of the few examples of a wide body jet that the market really would like right now. Uh, and I think I have no doubt that the market would really want them. There are, I believe, 115, 120 that need modifications of an uncertain variety. It's sort of like its own mini 737 MAX disaster. And they don't appear to be taking the concrete steps in terms of reinforcing technical resources and bringing people in, hiring people, doing whatever needed to fix the problem. It's just an absence of leadership at the very top. Ron, let me bring you in on uh, what uh, this uh, potential news means uh, for the company, right? I mean, not good if the FAA is not expressing uh, confidence uh, in the company's plan. From your standpoint, uh, where are we? And and if I can push back a little bit, right? I mean, Satch was saying that if as you look downstream, and, and you're, you guys are both saying the same thing, right? It wasn't an immediate that the triple seven is the right airplane for right now, but as you as you look a little bit a little bit uh, down downstream, but I mean, uh, uh, Ron, I want to get your sort of take on what the news flow means, and then get both of your take uh, on whether or not this drives any sort of senior leadership changes uh, at at the company ultimately, right? I mean, it is not a vote of confidence if you have uh, prominent lessors sort of raising questions about uh, the management uh, management of the company. So, yeah, let's hit a couple points. Um, so it's, you know, to pick up on Richard's comment, um, it's it's not so many of a 737 kind of issue. Um, they've got about 100, I think it's about 115 airplanes, 787s, and each 787 is roughly maybe two, uh, well, more than two, call it two and a half to three, uh, the price of a 737. They've got about 360 some odd 
parked. Um, so if you think about it, it's in, if you were to think about the magnitude of what's parked on 787s, it's, it's on the order of um, kind of like 350 or so 737s. Um, so it's in terms of the financial magnitude on each, it's they're pretty similar, honestly, right? Um, so you, you got that. The, the other issue you have is, and this came up on the 737s, why do you still have 365 or so, uh, plus or minus a little, uh, 737 sitting around uh, because depickling them has been much more difficult than they initially um, anticipated. And think about it the uh, Ethiopian crash was on March 10th of 2019. Some of these airplanes have been sitting there for three years. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable, right? So um, you, you've got that, that same issue is going to happen with the 787s. The longer they sit around, the more difficult it is going to be not only to make any modifications you have to them, but you have to depickle them too. So it, it, that, that becomes complicated. Um, so that, that, that the whole thing kind of really does snowball. Um, and there's, a, a, as I alluded to before, just a boatload of inventory kind of tied up there. And, you know, it, 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 these things are, you know, ultimately airplanes are depreciating assets. So over time, they, they do go down in value, even if you don't use them. Um, so they're, they're kind of sitting around losing value for Boeing and that'll be reflected in pricing or whatever. They've already taken some charges, but the longer this goes on, you would expect that they're going to probably have to take more because they didn't anticipate probably how long this is all going to take. Um, on, on the triple seven, um, it's, you know, it's a great airplane. Um, uh, it's a wide body that a lot of people like, you know, the, the freighter, it was an airplane that was designed with the freighter at the beginning. Um, I think Sash mentioned that. The issue is, I think what Richard highlighted is that's like one a month, right? I mean, most freighters, you don't buy a dedicated new freighter. Typically, you do a conversion um, because you don't you don't still put the hours on a freighter. Um, the utilization rate of a freighter isn't usually high enough to justify uh, buying a new you know, new machine. You just typically do a conversion. Um, so even if you've got the best mousetrap out there, the demand for that mousetrap will be more limited than whatever be I mean, severely limited relative to uh, a passenger version. Uh, I mean, ultimately, will the, the market for um, very large airplanes come back? Maybe. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to say. Probably. But, um, you know, the dynamics in the industry change. And it's, it's what's so fun about following it is, um, you know, it, it, things change. Um, so anyway, I think that's, you know, that's that's where we fall out. And what's the likelihood that there's going to be bigger leadership changes, right? I mean, it's always something that the street recognizes when big lessors uh, are raising these kinds of questions or prominent voices in the industry, whether uh, overtly or tacitly. Um, does this drive, Richard, maybe you can start us off. I mean, is there, right? I mean, investors have a tendency of pushing companies to make decisions they might not otherwise consider making yeah i mean obviously ron's the better person to talk about the relationship between shareholders and uh, and share prices but obviously you hit 122 this week for Boeing stock i believe not a happy moment reflects a lack of confidence um you know one of the great um <laughs> i won't take him seriously as a uh, as a you know, a voice in aerospace, but on the other hand, he does kind of express a kind of mass market retail reality for, for stocks. Jim Cramer, who said, yeah, we're taking our money out of Boeing. This is getting nuts. We're putting it into something that, you know, will <laughs> actually do something for us. You can't help but wonder. Um, the tolerance for Dave Calhoun and this board has, I just, it, it kind of just, uh, it's gone on for a long time. I don't know what would precipitate everybody to say, hey, this has gone on for too long and this needs to change. I don't know how that happens. Obviously, it, it, normal companies, it would come from the board level, but the board, frankly, has been packed by people who, again, very generous, very big hearted and completely non-technical with one or two exceptions. So if it's not going to come from the board, how does it come from? Maybe that's a great time to turn back over to Ron. Um, I, I should just point out, right, in the case of McDonnell Douglas, the company actually was dead man walking for a long time and still generating very positive returns uh, for investors, right? I mean, so as, as long as they're, you know, ultimately making money, even if they're cannibalizing the company, you can actually, you know, keep 
keep investors happy for for a while if history is any uh, judge. Uh, well, yes, uh, yes and no. If I could just quickly chime in on that, and I do remember back in the late '90s when they still had Harry Stonecipher's uh, resume or you know bio on the website, and he was credited with something like tripling or quadrupling the McDonnell Douglas share price. In other words, they hadn't been doing well. The people looking at McDonnell Douglas had known. This thing was croaking. It had lost major competitions. Right. <clears throat> the A12 disaster, of course, the ATF, um, the MD95 fiasco, uh, so many different individual jetliner sales campaigns. I'm just scratching this. And of course, most right. of all, joint strike fighter, joint jazz at the time. However, he knew that there was somebody who'd pay top dollar for the company. And there was. And of course, the bitter joke at Boeing that, you know, McDonald used Boeing's money to buy Boeing. <laughs> I'm not so sure that's the scenario here. I mean, right. but it was back then. Yes, you're exactly right. And it wasn't very long after uh, that uh, down select decision, obviously, uh, like less than two years, year and a half or whatever it was before we had the Boeing deal in August 98, if I recall correctly. Ron, uh, get your take on this because there was a lot. We're going to go into a lightning round because we have less than five minutes left. And I want to cover uh, Flora Newsflow 919 uh, and uh, and other things. But, but Ron, just give you give you a shot at, at that um you know yeah so maybe, maybe I, I can't i can't i can't speculate to what's you know on the board's mind and i can't really speculate the management changes but what i can say is uh you know boeing closed the week at 127 dollars and 20 cents uh and if you go back to uh, march 1st of 2019 the stock was around 440 so the stock is down over 300 dollars off its peak uh and if you go back to 2013 the stock was trading around one 25. So uh, in roughly the last decade, Boeing's stock is just flat. Uh, and, you know, that investors will recognize that and they could right. put pressure on the board and the company to, to make changes. So and it, I think it's, it, it in some ways is just that simple. And we will uh, keep following it. Uh, Ron, uh, 919, uh, getting closer uh, to service. Talk to us about the news flow and what it means. And Richard, I'm going to talk to you about uh, Flora. And as everybody knows, uh, our uh, sponsor, Bell, obviously is, a, is an interested party in that, uh, full, full disclosure, as they compete against uh, Boeing uh, and Lockheed uh, Martin's Sikorsky division. But, but Ron, uh, you know, give us your take on 919. And, and Richard, if you want to comment on that as well. Uh, real quick, uh, what, is, what does this test flight mean? Yeah, so according to some news flow that was out uh, uh, late on Friday, um, the, the 919 flew for three hours. It was a pre-delivery flight. Uh, and uh, this is uh, an, an aircraft that's supposed to be delivered to China, China Eastern Airlines. Um, so if indeed um, that the news is correct, uh, that this was kind of you know, a pre-delivery test flight and this airplane is going to get delivered to China Eastern, um, this will be the start of the 919 uh, in China as a commercial product. Um, ultimately, what does it mean? Um, I would imagine, uh, given what's been going on uh, from a economic perspective in China, there'll be pressure on the Chinese airlines to buy 919s. Ultimately, most of the airlines are owned by the government anyway, right? as is COMAC. Uh, you know, will they uh, displace Boeing and Airbus in the country? We'll we'll see. Um, I mean, our forecast has been that you know ultimately when the nine one nine hits some level of stable production, which could be, it could take a long time for that to happen, which I'm certain Richard will talk about. Uh, but if indeed they ever do get to that point, our kind of our, our forecast is of the Chinese domestic demand, uh, the nine one nine could take up to maybe a third of the, the aircraft that uh, China would need for its narrow body. So. We've been kind of thinking about it could be a third Airbus, a third Boeing, a third um, uh, Comac in China uh, one day if they get to stable production. Richard? I don't think this is the jet that China needs. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi voice, this is not the jet you are looking for. I mean, they need a Chinese jet. This is not a Chinese jet. All the brains and muscle are, in fact, Western. What they need is something that gives them autarky, you know, self-sufficiency, uh, whatever that foolish term that President Xi has been using Ron, help me out here. Something like, um, oh gosh, it, it, basically it's autarky with Chinese characteristics or make, something make like that. Make China, buy China, make China. That's it. Yeah, make, make in China, make buy China, whatever. This isn't that. And what they need, actually what Russia is going through right now, the MS-21 and the Superjet are being re-engineered as all Russian jets with Russian engines, Russian avionics. This is an 
arduous process. It's going to take years and they may never not get there because the market isn't big enough and the money might not be there and it's ludicrously corrupt. Uh, whereas in China, hey, the market is there, the money might be there. Uh, it's a lot less corrupt, although not without corruption. And um, it, <laughs> it's merely going to take a bunch of years. So flying the, you know, the, the theoretical production version with the ARJ-21 that didn't prove to be the case at all. It was pseudo production version, but they built about 20 pseudo production versions, you know, and constantly changed things. Um, this doesn't mean anything because eventually they're going to have to do what Russia does, was doing in order to make this program truly an example of national self-sufficiency. So in 2030, I hope we're doing the same podcast and I look forward to talking about, you know, the first flight of the actual Chinese version of this jet. Uh, and uh, speaking about uh, the Russification of that airplane, hopefully it comes with scripture of your choice. I've spent a lot of time on TU-154s. Uh, as you know well, uh, Richard, as being one of my oldest friends, um, wow, uh, all I have to tell you is I became a religious man on that airplane. And, and Richard, we don't have very much time, but I want to talk, uh, get your uh, sense on a news flow. Uh, as the U.S. Army gets close to making a decision on the future uh, long-range assault aircraft, obviously, uh, Bell has the V-280 uh, Valor. Uh, Lockheed Sikorsky and Boeing are doing uh, the Defiant, um, you know, a faster uh, uh, Black Hawk, uh, effectively, uh, one with a compound coaxial design, the other one a, a, a tilt rotor. Talk to us about what uh, not only we know about when the down-select decision was going to be made, right? I mean, there was an expectation it was going to be in June. Uh, now it looks like it's been pushed a little bit further back uh, to uh, uh, further back in the year, but also the Army uh, made another announcement, which makes this very interesting and for skeptics uh, would suggest that the Army might actually be overall cooling on the program or at least trying to reinsure, reassure uh, both of the competitors. Anyway, talk to us about the news flow and what do you think it all means? Yeah, you know, for years, it's it's been really tough to understand how the Army doesn't un understand the whole concept of economics. Uh, <laughs> I think maybe they do. It's just disconnected from the people who are doing tech evaluations of the various competitors. But again, you know, you can do these new, faster, better, whatever, but you're going to pay twice as much in operating costs. You're going to pay twice as much in production costs. The engines are almost exactly twice as large, reflecting those economics. In, in other words, this looks like the makings of a high-low mix, where they buy some Flores and then keep going with new and upgraded Blackhawks, um, which makes perfect sense. And meanwhile, the Marines, too, will join in Flora because they're looking for something to spend their money on and continue the, to reinvent themselves as a non-traditional rotorcraft user with V-22s and of course now these. Um, I, I tend to think it's almost overwhelming that the V-280 wins just because technology maturity guaranteed the Marines buy-in, it's a little faster, actually it's considerably faster. And um, you know, it just seems a lot lower risk in terms of company profiles, it's just Bell rather than two companies that hate each other working together. I, I tend to think it's almost a lock. And then of course that guarantees that that high-low mix uh, includes a degree of competitive tension that keeps costs down with Lockheed providing the low mix with Blackhawks with the ITEP engine. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, Bell building the V-280. And you still think that the Flora, excuse me, that Flora after about a year, um, right? I mean, there's a sense that Flora is on borrowed time. Do you, do you get that sense um, as well? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's important to remember that we haven't had the equivalent airframe in the Army's inventory since the uh, Kiowa Warriors retired about a decade ago, if memory serves. And of course, you've got technology working against it too, because drones do an awful lot of that recon mission better and better and better. Um, you know, and of course, that drone and controller um, cooperation concept with Apache Block 4, that makes an awful lot of sense. And on top of that, you know, even when they did have Kiowa Warrior, you know, that was like in today's money, a $6 million machine and Farah is going to be 30 something. It, this doesn't make a great deal of sense. Uh, that doesn't mean they won't do it, but I, I'm not so sure where the cash would come from and why the priority would be there. Uh, and again, I mean, the Army might be looking at an, at an elegant 
way of potentially addressing this, right? If we're going to pick the Bell airplane, we at least give Sikorsky work, uh, continue uh, that industrial base uh, effectively to see if we can go uh, to other sorts of, of lift platforms in the future very quickly. And one last question, uh, news flow on uh, the outlook for more tankers and what that means for the uh, uh, Lockheed Airbus team uh, that was looking either in an interim or the next block by being something other than a KC-46. Yeah, not good news, not just in terms of the uh, the politics behind it, but of course also Frank Kendall coming out and, and saying, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. And the odds were always against it because, you know, there's so much risk associated with recapitalizing the oldest dirt KC-135 fleet. So the idea of pausing, you know, about a third of the way through and then doing another competition, making, risking all of that, um, and then just to have to pay more for it, because even though the KC-30 would be a more capable design, it would also cost more too. So the idea of all that happening was always kind of a tall order. It would obviously depend on Lockmart being able to shape the requirements process, which was not out of the question. It still isn't out of the question, but you know it would take an awful lot of work. And the implication in, uh, in, in recent news has been that, no, <laughs> you don't really stand a chance. We're just sticking with what we know. Besides the contract structure of the KC-46, $5 billion in cost overruns, all of it borne by Boeing. And it's incredibly generous, big-hearted board <laughs> simply, that simply right. has an endless tolerance for such snafus. It, it would be interesting, uh, Richard, uh, to uh, see whether or not um, the KC-30 actually comes around and becomes a much more attractive KC-10 replacement down uh, downstream because it is a bigger airplane and carries more cargo and more uh, fuel uh, yeah. as well, which was, That's which right. was sort of one, of one of one of the aims. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure having you guys on uh, and look forward to having everybody uh, together again next week. Hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and uh, see you again next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks again, Margo. Always, always a pleasure. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.